0: Hello, welcome to episode 38 of Herbsological Highlights. Uh, I'm Tom Major, I'm one of your hosts, and co-hosting with me, as per usual, is Ben Marshall. And today, for episode 38, we're going to be doing a news niche episode where we kind of don't have a set topic, we just kind of went away and picked a few bits and bobs that have come out recently that uh, we find particularly interesting or think warrant discussion or, you know, just have cool pictures or whatever it might be. And... uh, yeah, we're gonna have a little chat about some some varied topics. Hopefully, how are you doing, Ben? I'm I'm doing good. And uh, I
1: I think the most important news is you managed to say news niche without coercion and without a tiny bit of like bitterness in your voice whatsoever. That was just a pure clean take of you saying news niche.
0: Great. <laughs> yeah, a little tiny piece of me inside died in response to that. But um, <laughs> well, I can just,
1: I can pull that out and just edit it into all future episodes where you didn't,
0: you you say it with disdain. Perfect. <laughs> I, Please don't mistake my lack of disdain then for having a lack of disdain in general. I really do think that the, the term news niche is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm just bowing now to pressure. Uh, yeah, We've not had any complaints about it. So yeah, the news niche it is. Um, but yeah, what have you got for, for people for people this, this bye week? Uh, I've got that paper that I mentioned
1: well more than 2 weeks ago but in the previous episode uh, about lizards and that oh, big lizard day no, set
0: lizard... it's a lizard quiz isn't it
1: <laughs> no no well I've, t- I've toned down the lizard quiz because actually it's, it would just be like i've got loads of questions i could ask you but they're so niche like no one no one would know these <laughs> <What> <laughs> yeah you're... It's your lizards are nocturnal
0: nobody knows that well, i could give you a random like ball... i could give you a ballpark figure for that one yeah go on then it would be like it would be sort of a a guess uh, oh, is that like what? What what percentage of species? Yes,
1: what percentage oh. of species? So you've got to take
0: into account what... nocturnal. Yeah, you've got to take into account which kind of sorts of lizards are most species rich, right? Well, this is, it... is the problem, yes, because just because something's incredibly
1: diverse doesn't mean that it's actually been looked at in enough detail to split it up into species. So really, I suppose a lot of these percentages are taxonomically weighted towards
0: uh species that have had decent phylogenetic work done on them and so i mean there's lots and lots of geckos aren't there there's loads uh, yeah and they're, they're often not some of them are cool call, even cool day geckos so so don't get mm. don't get tricked that's true um what percentage of lizards are nocturnal hmm i'm gonna go with 55 percent are nocturnal not even close no, go Substantial percentages are active at
1: night. 1,247 species or 24%? Only 24% are active Only at night. Only 24%. Yeah, surprising. I should mention what paper this is. Um, this is by Mary, uh, published... Yeah, 2018. This is real new. Uh, Traits of Lizards of the World, Variation Around a Successful Evolutionary Design. Published in Global... Ecology and biogeography. Essentially, the paper is um, this person who's been working on this for the past twelve years, just slowly but surely gathering up trait and geographic data from field guides and papers, pretty much every source they can get their hands on, to compile this big data set of six thousand six hundred and fifty-seven known lizard species and some traits to do with them.
0: I'm completely uh, what a is whether they're nocturnal or diurnal. I'm completely gobsmacked by the fact that only 24% are nocturnal. <laughs> that's crazy. I think I was my opinion was probably really badly skewed by the fact that you see more lizards at night. Ah, um, uh, the old detectability with, Yeah, problem. detectability yeah. issue. Uh, but uh, yeah, just 24%, that's, that's crazy. I suppose, yeah, there are a lot of lizards which are only active during the day. Most monitor lizards that I can think of, chameleons... Um, Agamids mm. So yeah It's not that surprising When you really start To think about it But yeah 24 Well lots of
1: skinks too There's a S- lot of skinks yeah, Out there that's true Skinks There's skinks, hundreds of skinks I believe probably. Is actually the largest Lizard
0: family Skinkiday <laughs> skinker Skinkiday Yeah skinkiday And that's yeah. why They're called skinkiday Because they and like it in the 645...
1: day 1,645 no, I don't think that's No that's not mm. That's not right. We can't rule it out. We can't rule it out.
0: We'll wait How many species? <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> 1,645 skinks. That's enough skinks, herpetologists. Just give it a rest.
1: Now, wait, man. Jeez. We need twice as many skinks, and then we need to split the family in half.
0: For the lesser skinks and the greater skinks. That would be very apt, because some of the skinks... They're so forgettable. And then you've got things like blue tongue skinks, which are majestic. And um, what is it? The Well, the whole genus, Taliqua, the, you know, the, what are they call the uh, shingleback skinks and those, all those friendly little characters, they're well worth mentioning. Whereas mm. some of the other skinks are super small, you know, they're just kind of meh. <laughs> meh. They're not, they're, they wouldn't be meh if we knew more about them, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe not. They're probably all fascinating in their ways.
1: Um, okay, so let's let's continue with a few more questions. Uh, biggest
0: lizard, <laughs> biggest lizard, Varanus yeah. komodoensis. Yeah, there we go. What about smallest lizard? Um, oh, it's one of the tiny little chameleons.
1: Oh, no, it's not. That's what you. That's
0: what you'd think. Oh, but there's smaller okay. guys even still. Hang on, then. Is it a type of gecko? Yep. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the individual is. I'd be really intrigued to know, though. Uh, yeah. It's Sperodactylus L.S.
1: fine. Just? Is that from Madagascar? I don't know. Sperodactylus. Sperodactylus. i tell you what. I looked them up to spell. Uh, before and they are downright adorable.
0: No, uh, it's from the it Americas. It's a
1: genus from the Americas. There you oh, go. Oh, okay.
0: Oh, I recognize those. What's this stripy one? That's cool. Spherodactylus elegans is baby and it's stripy.
1: There you go. So you got big old, big old Komodo dragons and tiny little spherodactylus, you know,
0: you know. It's like 17 well,
1: millimeters
0: maximum SVL. Oh, what on earth? That's tiny. You know, we talked about um, on the podcast before, where when things get really small, they kind of become a little bit indistinct. Like a really small animal can't have a proper face. This <laughs> this is a perfect example of that. Their faces are not very good. They just look like a little. They look more like a fish than a than a gecko. They just got these big eyes and it's literally just the two North eyes American and... land fish. Yeah, that's right. They they look weird. <laughs> they look weird. Yeah. Um, Cool, well, okay, so I got one out of two there, so I'm currently I'm currently, one for three.
1: Yeah, okay, largest uh, genus by number of species.
0: Okay, I'm going out on a bit of a limb. Hemidactylus. Nope, Anolis. Anolis, of course it is, that's so stupid. How many Hemodactyls even are there? Probably not that many.
1: Oh, dude, I can't, I, well actually yes, I can pull that information out of nowhere, but it requires running a bit more script.
0: I can do it very quickly without any R. (laughs) Yeah, but. That's lame. Tireless. Anolis has 427 members. Oh, I should have known that. 427. Hemidactylus has 149. Yeah, puny. Might be second. Might be second. Maybe. I should have known that, though. But, but, you know, Hemi. But Anolis is a classic example of what you said earlier, where I may end up getting split, maybe. Well, wasn't there there's yeah a lot of these yeah, but, things there, there is may also, end up getting split yeah there was a paper recently which did split anolis and then it was yes controversial
1: i mean of course it is because it's splitting a... I i i don't i mean i'm not getting into it because i haven't read the uh, read the paper but hmm. whenever you're splitting something that's like so well known and so widely used and you know you're going to get people on both sides it's always going to be the way.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, people don't like change. Um, understandably, it's confusing, especially if you only refer to them in a. You know, especially if you know systematics isn't really relevant to what you're interested in them for. Just mm. easier to call them by what you know them by, I suppose.
1: So, what about uh, lizards eating stuff? How many uh, lizards do you reckon
0: are carnivorous? Uh, okay, so how are you dividing it? Is there carnivorous? Omnivorous and herbivorous or Yes. Okay. Um, how many are just just obligately carnivorous? They don't eat any vegetables.
1: Well, classified as carnivorous by this data. I can't I can't make any promises that they actually only okay. eat meat okay. because obviously this is based on
0: you know, what, what information's out there. Are you after a percentage?
1: Yeah, percentage. Or you can give me a number of species. Percentage. But a percentage would be Probably easier.
0: This is really hard. Um, okay. 70%. Oh, that's a pretty damn good guess. Yeah?
1: It's pretty pretty
0: much bang on 80%. 80%? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That's and there's a, a lot.
1: there's an interesting skew that 92% of the nocturnal
0: species are carnivorous. That is interesting. Yeah. I suppose that... Um, Plants and things like that are very much geared to um, showing themselves off in the daylight, aren't they? If they've got edible chunks, like fruit.
1: Yeah, and I I suppose a lot of the carnivory might come from uh, eating insects at night or something along those lines. Mm. Like moths and things like that.
0: Yeah. Mm. But yes. That's really interesting. I like the data set that you've got.
1: Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun little data set to go and explore and things like that. Um, has a little bit about sort of extinction and things like that, sort of where the ranges are in latitude and longitude, stuff for SVL, stuff about clutch size, foraging mode, uh, highest and lowest reported mean body temperatures. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, it's useful. It's a nice it's a nice start for studies and quite a useful resource to quickly look stuff up I would
0: have thought. Yeah, that sounds like a cool thing. Um hey, so shall I tell you about something which I read this week? Yes, go for it. Okay, so I found a paper um, which is called eco-evolutionary rescue promotes host pathogen existence and this is from ecological applications. And it was written by Dorenzo Zipkin, Grant, Royal, Longo, Zamudio, and Lips, Karen Lips, who's really famous um, amphibian biologist, uh, studying, well, often studying uh, chytrid fungus. And that's what this paper is about. And as we all know, chytrid is bad, bad, bad. No one's going to try and deny that. Uh, Frogs become sort of weak, lethargic, terrible things happen to their skin. They get ulcers. They shed their skin relentlessly, their skin is constantly peeling off, and lots of them die, and uh, it's been the cause of many, many extinctions. And uh, what they set out to do in this paper was kind of work out, after a fungal pathogen comes through, like, like chytrid, uh, some species are extirpated, you know, made extinct, they're gone, but um, others do survive, and they kind of begin, eventually, to seemingly live alongside the fungus. So... There isn't necessarily mm. a complete wipeout situation. There's going to be some species which are left and, you know, they carry on despite the fact that the fungus is there. And it's a bit of a mysterious subject area how sort of the details of host and pathogen coexistence, what the, me- what the mechanisms are behind that happening. Um, it's quite a difficult thing to study because after a comes through, there's often going to be very few frogs left in an area to study anyway, being as so many are dead. And those which remain, they're frogs, so they're likely to be quite cryptic and hard to find too. So you've got Smitty. this kind of double, mm-hmm. yeah, so you've got this double whammy of likely low encounter rates and also, um, well, yeah, just low encounter rates caused by the fact that there are few frogs and um, frogs are super sneaky. And they kind of discuss three main theories in this paper as to why, or as to sort of what governs the coexistence of pathogens and animals after something like chytrid comes through and um, the first of those is something called source sink source sink dynamics and the idea behind this one is that um, although there's lots of frogs being killed by the chytrid fungus there's enough new frogs entering a system either by the frogs which are already there reproducing or immigration from surrounding areas that there maintains enough frogs which aren't affected by the fungus to support the population and kind of bolster it where loads are dying but there's also loads of recruitment from new frogs and immigrating frogs and the population keeps going that way so although there's high turnover of individuals like being born and dying the population kind of remains stable so that's one sort of theory uh the second one is sort of mad max equivalent for frogs isn't it (laughs) essentially yeah fast die young yeah (laughs) live fast die young yeah like everything's you know yeah there's there's many many deaths you know frogs around you are dropping like flies which is probably a pun frogs could enjoy um (laughs) uh, but yeah it's the population is being maintained by other frogs coming in be it from neighboring areas or because they're breeding like crazy and surviving because there's fewer adult frogs the second theory is called eco-evolutionary rescue uh, which is a pretty dramatic phrase eco-evolutionary rescue Um, and this describes a situation where one of either two things has happened. Either the frogs have been selected for or adapted to have some resistance or tolerance to the fungus so that frogs are still infected by it, but they have somehow managed to either reduce the growth of the fungus on their bodies or they have developed a means to cope with it where there's still the same amount of fungus, but the frogs have kind of adapted to survive despite it. Um, So that's the kind of evolutionary aspect of evolutionary, eco-evolutionary rescue And then on top of that, there's the eco bit um, of eco evolutionary rescue, which is where the community composition changes. So the kind of fundamental ecology of the area changes so that there are different numbers of frogs of each species and potentially that can have an impact on their survival. So um, I've got a good example of that later on. It's a bit of a confusing one, but essentially, yeah, there's more or less of certain species and that somehow benefits the remaining species to be less impacted by the fungus. So and then the third one uh, is spatial variation in pathogen transmission. So some areas even within a population of frogs are either better or worse for the chytrid fungus. So um, essentially this could be a particular microhabitat which the fungus isn't so good at growing in or doesn't affect frogs which spend a lot of time in that area and uh, they're kind of there's kind of this formation of refuge areas and then particularly bad areas. And obviously the refuge areas uh, promote the survival of the frogs. The only downside of that is that often if there is variety in how bad Kittred is across a habitat, the areas where it is bad can become kind of sources for good areas. But anyway. um so mean those are the, uh, No, no, no. They could spread out from the areas where it's bad into the areas where it's not so Oh, bad.
1: right. A source of chytrid as opposed to a sink for frogs.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about it from the frog perspective. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. It would also be a sink. That's quite confusing. Yeah. It would also be a sink for, for frogs, which they would just drain down, <laughs> die in there, in the many hundreds. But um, yeah, so collectively, <laughs> these three theories, it's a bit... It, <laughs> it, it's, it's, I've
1: got... Oh, man. Part of me is this imagery of a frog sauce but sauce spelt with an a oh and no it being poured down a sink and it's just grim it's, oh, it's, it's horrible
0: man frog sauce do you know i once ate frog uh i once ate a load of frogs by well deliberately or well, accidentally yes and no it was kind of not deliberate but i'm I, they snuck you know, up on you i didn't take great pains to not eat frogs so it was in china and i didn't know i just you know we well Maya and I just pointed to something on the menu and um it came out and it was like this noodle broth and it was delicious. It tasted like um it tasted like delicious fish frog's stew. <laughs> yeah. As I later realised. Anyway, I've like got my chopsticks and I pulled out this frog leg and I was like looking at it and it took me a second to register what it actually was and I was like, Oh that's a web, that, that's a frog. That's a frog's leg. Um but yeah, I mean once we'd ordered it we ate it and it was actually really, really nice. Um well, you I mean, you can't let the frogs go to waste at that point. Exactly. Um, but yeah, wouldn't probably do it again, but especially. Well, I don't know, yeah. Don't know that there's much sustainable harvest of frogs, but, you know, the frogs are quite tasty, so that that's that. But, um,. Anyway, regardless of my frog experiences, collectively, these three theories, so the source sinks dynamics, the eco-evolutionary rescue and the spatial variation, bit confusing. There's a lot to it. But essentially, these three theories intermingle and they are thought in various kind of with various weightings to explain how frogs coexist with chytrid. Um, but it's a bit of a mystery which is the most important and which is acting on kind of specific populations. Enter this mm. research team. Um they did six seasons of fieldwork in a national park in Panama, uh, in El Cope, I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, where all the frogs are susceptible to chytrid. Um, so all the frogs in this Panamanian national park um, can get chytrid. Um, and what they did was they calculated the disease burden of 1,600 frogs from 32 species, Um, And then after they'd done that, they used some complicated modelling to discern survival rates for diseased and non-diseased frogs using unmarked individuals. Yeah, so basically the big finding of um, all of this research that they did and their modelling was actually some good news. Um, Remember the uh, eco-evolutionary rescue theory, which is the one to do with the frogs themselves um, either evolving or adapting to have some kind of Uh, Defense against the chytrid fungus or the sort of um, community composition changing in such a way that the frogs are no longer quite so vulnerable. Well, that seems to be what's happened. Um, It seems as though the frogs in this Panamanian national park are actually evolving some resistance to the chytrid fungus. Uh, They actually found that monthly survival, so survival month to month, was the same for both infected and uninfected frogs. And um, this is in line with some other studies that they mentioned, which have suggested that frog species can actually adapt to live with the fungus. So, yeah, frogs with the fungus were just as likely to survive as frogs without the fungus, which has obviously not been the case historically, because Panama itself has, well, the El Copé region in Panama has only 32 of its original 74 frog species remaining. 42 have gone extinct. Um, Holy smokes. Yeah, which is pff, terrible. Yeah. Um, and what they thought, perhaps, because apparently there's evidence elsewhere that kitchard gets less kind of virulent over time once it's been in an environment. Yeah, that was that was certainly
1: stuff I've heard before is, is how it maintains itself over time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But they actually compared the um, strains of fungus they were getting from frogs in their study, which ended in 2014, to um, strains of the fungus from way back in the kind of original outbreak in 2004. And they found that they had the same virulence. As they had previously. So it wasn't because the virus itself, well, not the virus, the uh, fungus itself was getting less damaging. It was actually likely due to the fact that the frogs were somehow learning to cope with it. Um, That's pretty
1: amazing to see that sort of uh, adaptation on what you'd sort of consider quite a short evolutionary time scale.
0: Yeah, well, That's they did pretty this. Pretty rapid. I suppose yeah. the
1: selection is unbelievably strong because of the amount being wiped out, but. If you can sort of weather that initial smash by the Kittred, then uh, yeah,
0: really, really impressive. So Kittred arrived in 2004. They started this study in 2009 when frog numbers were quite low. But then between 2010 and 2014, um, the frog numbers seemed to have stabilised. Um, although the frog abundance is only 60% of what it was, so there's only 60% as many frogs as there were prior to chytrid, and obviously the number of species is now less than half of what it was, um, the Mm. community does seem to have stabilised over the sort of last few years of the study, um, which is really, really good news. And that's kind of the eco part of the eco-evolutionary rescue. um, Because there's this change in community composition, Uh, one of the things which has affected it is thought to be Atalopus varius. And we did an Attilopus species for our Species the Bi-Week one one episode. Um, it's one mm. of the clown frogs. And this Atalopus varius was thought to have been what's called a chytrid super shedder, right? So this one has a way disproportionate amount of zoospores coming off it. it. It just spreads chytrid like crazy. And this frog actually went extinct uh, or was last seen in El Copé in 2009. And so one of the theories is that this frog having gone extinct is an example of this eco part of the eco evolutionary rescue because this frog has now been removed from the environment and it was a major player in worsening chytrid for the other frogs it's actually served to kind of provide a more hospitable environment for the frogs that are left which is That's savage
1: a, yeah but it's such a cool uh, a cool thing to have to identify
0: absolutely love that when you when
1: you get this community ecology sort of thing like looking at one species and trying to protect one species wouldn't be sufficient to id the problem or even come up with a with a solution you know obviously it's a little bit too late for for so many of those frog species but going forward it's a pretty good case if you've got another introduced disease somewhere is you can't just look at hey that charismatic species that we want to save and we can use as a flagship you might have to come at it at a more uh, community and ecosystem level and look at a lot of different pieces, not just this species is vulnerable, how do we keep yeah. their population up or something. Mate, Something completely. more akin to that.
0: Completely, because this Attilopus varius, the clown frog, is like spectacular to look at. I had to look on Google. It's a beautiful frog, you know, it's bright yellow, black bands. You know, if you were going to pick a species as a flagship to try and... Get you know, regenerate in a Panamanian jungle, you'd be like, Well, let's get this guy. Um, but obviously, knowing what they know, if you did use that frog for that purpose, it might be that you would be massively worsening the situation for the frogs that were remaining, at least temporarily, yeah. until the balance was restored and it <laughs> became extinct again. Um, so yeah, it really does. It, it's an added layer of complexity to a reintroduction for sure.
1: Yeah, real
0: complexity. I mean, mm. that is oh.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of frog species to be working with to try and work that out.
0: Yeah, no doubt.
1: Um, That's a lot of effort.
0: So, yeah, there was really good evidence for this um, eco eco evolutionary rescue theory. Uh, There was also a little bit of evidence for the spatial variation in pathogen transmission theory, which is where the one, it's the theory where some areas are less bad than others for chytrid. And what they found was that in plots, in 20 by 20 meter plots with more frogs, the frogs had a higher load of fungus. Um, than plots where there was only one frog. So if there was loads of frogs, there was more fungus on the frogs that were there than when there was just one frog. Um, sadly, though, even in areas with only one frog in 20 metres squared, they still had Kitrid, which um, kind of has... It's a big big suggestion that Kitrid is therefore hanging around in the environment, um, or at least BD mm. is, the fungus, uh, for potentially some time. But yeah, it was interesting to see that... Um, you know, areas with higher density of frogs had more, had a higher Kitrid burden on their bodies. Um, but regardless, it's quite good news, or at least it's it's cause for some optimism because you know there seems to be some evidence that this uh, community of frogs has sort of reached some kind of an equilibrium in that no longer are frogs dying more often because of chitrid. It's no longer causing them you know this extreme mortality that that it was. Whether or not that represents evidence that they're going to exist like that from now on or whether or not you know other changes which we talk about a lot like you know habitat change climate change could potentially kick them in the teeth um and you've still
1: got chytrid hanging around and things mutate and change and now now you sort of feel maybe there's a little bit of a well i was going to say evolutionary arms race but i suppose that's not perhaps true because the fungus doesn't gain anything from killing frogs but I suppose it does gain a lot from just being carried from place A to B on frogs. So perhaps there's a sort of slight selective pressure not to kill the frogs if that develops once again.
0: Yeah, well, it could be argued, maybe, yeah. It's interesting that they did check to see whether the fungus had become less virulent, because like you say, it would almost seem a benefit to Chytrid to become... Slightly less killy. If it was less killy, it might do a little better. It lasts a little longer because it's wiped out half its host. What does fungus really want? Hmm. I think fungus wants what everyone wants. You know, Uh, just chocolate, (laughs) chocolate. (laughs) Just you know, a vague sense of security, Mm. which it can't find on the backs of extinct frogs. No. But yeah, no. It's interesting. But I just thought, you know, this is a paper which, uh, again, I mean, we talked we talked about this. We talked about this on our appearance on Moralia uh, Python Radio just yesterday. Um, and yeah, like, there's just so many sort of facets to things like chytrid, which you wouldn't necessarily consider. Um, and I mean, the fact that there's a potential equilibrium is quite exciting. And it just remains to be seen whether or not um, it does represent... A, f- a future for this community and it'll be interesting to see other people apply these same methods to other populations of frogs and see if the story is similar elsewhere where chytrid or yeah. even other fungal diseases have gone through
1: well that's the trick isn't it i mean we've got a couple of examples with um the uh, snake fungus in north america and uh b sal in in europe and whatnot of uh, these sort of studies should probably start now Well, you've got, you know, before things are infected, so you've got baseline data and hope and pray that you don't get that sort of post-collapse data. But from a scientific point of view, having baseline effect after effect be pretty phenomenal to see how uh, ecosystems react to this sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. You really don't want it to happen.
0: And one thing that really struck me about reading this paper, I didn't have time to follow up on a lot of the references. I would like to, uh, but I think we could do a whole episode on the genetic adaptations of frogs to chytrid fungus. There seems to be quite a few out there. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it is. A f- you said how many species have been lost in Panama alone? I mean, that is a rather just uh, just cause when it comes to research, isn't it? I mean, yeah. That is frontline conservation right there.
0: Yeah. Anyway, a little bit bleak. I thought I'd start with that one. But it is also an optimistic one about Kittred, which, yeah, I think we need that occasionally because um, it's very easy to get caught up in doom and gloom. And then things like this make you realise, you know, (laughs) nature will find a way. or life finds a way. Come on now. That's the quote. Life finds a
1: way. Life does find a way. It's just, you know, when it comes back, Panama might be infested with sort of really ugly frogs with six legs weird buggy eyes who knows (laughs) but they'll be able to survive Kittred yeah yeah okay well I mean going from frogs to actually more frogs and also frogs that get eaten so we can segue off your I ate a frog in some soup to <laughs> uh, Pelophylax, Kurt Mullerai and their little story about how they've been introduced to Italy. Cool. Uh, so I read a paper of Fallischi, Mangiocotti, Sacchi, Scali, Rossetti. In 2018, electric circuit theory applied to alien invasions. A bit of a connectivity model predicting the Balkan frog expansion in northern Italy, published in Acta Herpetologica. Yeah, so this little guy, the uh, Balkan frog, usually lives in Greece, Albania, Serbia, Macedonia, over the other side of the uh, Adriatic, right?
0: Right, okay.
1: Yes, Adriatic. And in the 40s, it was introduced to... portion of Italy for food. Um, As is so often the case when you put a species from one place to another place, sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't succeed, Um, but it's probably worth finding out and predicting what's going to happen so you can stop the worst of it if actually the worst of it is going to occur. And when we're saying worst of it, we are talking, in this case, uh, competition or spreading of disease amongst native frogs. Because you think you bring in a frog from the Balkans, and if it can outcompete local frogs, you're going to lose your, your local diversity. Sure. Um, so natives are actually members of the same genus. Uh, so with fellow phylax uh, Lessinae and fellow phy- phylax Mullerai Esculentus. Esculentus, sorry. So a subspecies and a full-blown separate species. So you're already dealing with like, okay, it might not be too far away related-wise, so maybe a similar life history, and you're going to have direct competition. Mm, Darwin's of, pre-adaptation yeah, hypothesis. There's, <laughs> well, yeah, you can see it in action.
0: Fly over to Italy and watch the sparks fly. <laughs> Wait, so sorry. There's a one. The species we're talking about is Pelophylax. Kurt and the species which are already there are Pelophylax what and what?
1: Lessonay and Pelophylax yeah. Kurt uh escalentus. Okay, so full so blown separate species and a subspecies.
0: So the in the introduced one is a sub is a subspecies of one that already exists there. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So you can't actually say it's an introduced species; it's an introduced subspecies.
1: Well, yeah, this is what's a sort of a little bit strange about this paper because it's a very interesting paper and it's, it's showing a rather interesting sort of occurrence. But the actual motivation behind looking into this, like it's it's quite dramatic, is a little bit funny in my mind because of the closely relatedness of the native species and the introduced one. Hmm. Um, and what's what, further what the- to that point, <laughs> there <I> got- <laughs> seems to be very little research gone into whether they're actually going to directly compete or not. The whole point of this paper is to be like, well, it's it's actually dealing with suitability and whether they're going to spread as a motivator to find out whether it's actually worth uh, doing anything about this introduced frog subspecies slash species. So um, how are they different? Do they look different? I don't know. Hmm. Let's have a look. (laughs) No. So they're quite nice little traditional looking
0: frogs. I would say they green, are traditional looking frogs. Yeah.
1: With yeah, a nice uh, face. Nice green stripe down them. <laughs> and then the uh lesson A is a little bit plainer in terms of patterning but greener. Or at least some individuals appear to be greener.
0: Mm, yeah, I prefer Lesson A. I think Lesson A is kinda of more jazzy.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Plainer but cool. brighter colours. Yeah. So 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 so. They're checking out what's going on. And currently it seems like these frogs they're slowly expanding, or, or they have expanded, but they've been stopped in the north of their range by the Po River. And it seems to be this really perfect line of of only a few individuals found north of the Po River. And the game plan of this paper was to work out, okay, what's actually going on? Is the Po River acting as a barrier? or is it something else so basically i do this by two two methods one is a uh, using a environmental suitability model to see if the areas north of the river are just less suitable for this frog than the areas south make a lot of sense frogs not going to go there and survive if there aren't suitable areas the second theory is whether the actual river itself is just blocking them and so they run various different models uh, giving it a like a different level of permeability, the, a lower or higher chance of the frog getting through the river and to the other side, and just how how sensitive that frog dispersal is to the
0: permeability of the river. So it's your classic case so, of why did the frog cross the river, or could it, Why did it, or did it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: and what was the, the neat bit about this paper that sort of caught my eye was the whole... Electric circuit, electric circuit theory. So what's going on there is you've got a background map, essentially, of suitability. And then applied to that is uh, a model that finds sort of passively least resistance, like electricity does. So that's going to show you routes of connectivity that the frog could travel along. Cool. And get to, and get to the north. Um. And essentially the findings are, yes, the north is less suitable on average, but that doesn't fully explain why it's not there, because there are areas of high suitability that if a frog gets there and establishes, you could see, okay, it could make a little population and do all right. So the connectivity models as well show that it's got to pretty much be acting as a pretty substantial barrier because if there were even low levels of permeability it looks like there's enough connectivity via tributaries of the Po River like up to the Alps and stuff that would allow the frog to move up and make its way into the northern region. So really it's looking like some sort of combination where there's a low likelihood of the frog getting past the river but the ones that do tend to not make it very far and not get fully into these these high suitability areas. So on average, there's low suitability, so they're just not getting that foothold.
0: Right.
1: Now, whether that will actually stay the case, that's a whole other question. could be a matter of time before a few frogs get lucky and get into one of these pockets of high suitability and then expand from there. So... Yeah, it it raises quite a few questions. Well, so these frogs... How big is this river that they're trying to get across? How big is this river? It's pretty substantial. The Po River is not insignificant. No. Uh, let me see if I can pull up some numbers for you. How are you spelling Po? P O.
0: Po River. Po River. Uh. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it doesn't really look like good frog habitat in the actual river itself,
1: does it? <laughs> well, that's the other trick is it's areas around the Po River are actually not suitable, particularly for the frog. So there is this like almost buffer of poor habitat on the northern side. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that there just seems this, this culmination of several factors that is enabling this river to actually block the uh, block the movement. I mean, you look at the map, and it is a lot of suitable habitat. Comes up against this river and stops. You've got this maybe twenty kilogram, uh, twenty kilometer gap, and there's a few tributaries and things. But the main areas, the main uh, land uses up there are, are not good enough for this frog to establish. So, I mean, looking at
0: images of this frog on Google, they do look pretty determined. But I don't know, 20 kilometres of unsuitable habitat is a long way for a frog. This certainly sounds like they got their work out. And how long ago were they introduced?
1: Uh, They were introduced in the 1940s, 1941 is what people think. They've had quite a while to work on it then. They have, yeah, but again, this is the problem. If you don't have sort of older data to show rates and things, that might be quite hard to work out. Mm, Um, Yeah. So I think we'll wait and see. The other... Slight twist to this is the underlying assumption that suitability is a good proxy for movement corridors. And there's a recent paper out by um, Schaff et al., and uh, well, the, the title explains it Habitat Suitability Does Not Capture the Essence of Animal Defined Corridors. Granted, they are not working with amphibians in that paper. I think it's uh, a type of deer, if I remember correctly. So amphibian corridors may be more constrained by suitability because they're moisture-limited. Well, you know, they're more moisture-limited than a deer, perhaps.
0: Well, yeah, they're going to be on much smaller scales, aren't they? Yeah,
1: so stuff like this, you've got to a lot of what they're saying makes absolutely perfect logical sense because you can see the tributaries and you can see the way things are connected up and the models are making very logical sense and everything seems to be tallying up. And certainly looking at the maps and stuff, it the patterns are, are very clear, very clear. But then in the back of the mind, you do have this, all it takes is a, a freaky occurrence of X number of frogs getting transported to whatever place on a super rainy day or floodwaters something like that and they get pushed up to the north in however way whatever reason so it's yeah it's interesting there's some, there's some caveats and there's still a lot of questions but it is a very little cool case study of a river blocking an amphibian uh, invasive front if you wanted to call it an invasive front that might be a little bit of an overstatement yeah give them a chance Ben jeez yeah <laughs> <laughs> Weird, isn't well, especially, it? If you especially pick- considering that they may not even be all that bad. I mean, yeah. they, they mentioned towards the end that uh, hybridization in these water frogs tends to be pretty, pretty widespread. So it might just be a sort of outbreeding depression in Italian frogs. I I don't know. I don't mm. know. I don't think they really know. They wanted this paper to be like, okay, we should check this out now, because if things do break through to the north, you've got this pretty wonderful setup of where they started where they expanded a break of them not being able to get across and then this
0: sort of new reset of uh, northern frog populations it's cool stuff it's really funny because the last thing you'd expect to block a radiation of frogs would be a river <laughs> yeah exactly right exactly <laughs> like oh it's sort of like <clears throat> what's going to block the radiation of a human well it's not going to be a footpath <laughs> um, a cursed yeah footpath. yeah a nice curved walkway. I think, um, yeah, I hadn't heard about those frogs. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I, it makes me think of our introduced frogs in the UK. <clears throat> there's, um, we got the common tree frog, Hyla Arborea. Um, there's some in Devon and London and in the Isle of Wight uh, and the New Forest. Um, yeah, I'd like to go and see them. Would be quite cool. Just, just for the novelty
1: of seeing a, a species where it shouldn't be, or just because they're genuinely gr-
0: cool creatures. Well, just because they're genuinely cool, yeah. And also the novelty of seeing an introduced species. I like introduced species. I can be quite interesting. Um, but oh, yeah, just,
1: to, just to backtrack a little second, um, the uh, animal movements or suitability not defining corridors particularly well, that was actually done on multiple species. Uh, it was black bears, bobcats, coyotes, and wolves. Damn. Uh, so it, was, it wasn't deer at all. But um, some charismatic megafauna. The the point still exactly the point still stands because they're all big, well, decent-sized mammals, aren't they? So whether the same rules apply for amphibians is a different question. Uh, But would be fascinating to find out. Yeah, it would be cool. Would require different methods to what these guys have done because I don't think we have GPS collars quite small enough
0: for the Balkan water frog. I'm going to go ahead and say no, we don't. Not without doing some serious harm to a frog. Or <laughs> yeah. uh, jumping forward 20 years in a time machine. Yeah. So interesting that you've picked something out that's to do with introduced species, because I've got something about introduced species as well. Ah. Do uh, yeah, so... I know we talked about chameleons in the last episode and we didn't want to get too much into the invasive chameleons because we just wanted to talk about chameleons in their natural habitat doing what chameleons are supposed to do because, I don't know, it's kind of relaxing to talk about that. It's nice to think about chameleons. Yeah, the
1: invasive species stuff is super interesting, but uh, it's always got that sort of background of this is something that probably shouldn't have happened and negative consequences, don't really know what's going on. Yeah, Everyone's scared. There's bleak overtones. Yeah, it's real grim. And and you've also... It tends to paint a lot of these... Like I said, invasive front and stuff like that, just that terminology, tends to put a lot of these animals in a bad light when it's absolutely not their fault. There's nothing wrong with these animals. There's nothing wrong with They just happen to be in a place that they may be harming other species. But that's... You know, it's all a point of view thing. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day for them or them. So...
0: No, no. Yeah, um, yeah. invasive front just conjures image of war. It's a really horrible phrase. Well, it does. Uh, but also, uh,
1: it's quite amusing to think of a whole bunch of frogs marching over the river. <laughs> That's a brilliant image. That is actually quite a funny
0: image. <laughs> hey, so um, anyway, the species I want to talk about is uh, the old Jackson's chameleon, Tracerus oh, yeah. jacksoni. And in this case, uh, I think it's Tracerus jacksoni xantholophus. Um, which is the one that's introduced to Hawaii. And the paper is Van uh, Cleek, Smith and Holland, 2018 Pedophagic Cannibalism Resource Partitioning and Ontogenetic Habitat Use in an Invasive Lizard. Oh, um, this sounds grim. Yeah, mate. So this is a classic Thunderdome paper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. We haven't it's had not one of those <laughs> in at least a week. Mate, I know. I couldn't believe when I found it. I was like, Put them in the arena, and make them fight. Um, so they did. They did exactly that. <laughs> They're even and, armed. They've got horns. Yeah, they've got horns. Although the oh. horns weren't much good in this case, particularly because baby ones don't have horns. Um, but yeah, so I'll go. I'll do a bit of background on this paper before we get into the grisly detail, um, which really is quite grim, actually. Um, so the authors kind of conceived this paper because they noticed that um, baby chameleons, baby Jackson's chameleons, are brown and. Um, the adults are green. And so there's this ontogenetic or ontogenic color change, which kind of prompts this question of why are the babies brown and the adults green? Um, is there some kind of resource partitioning where the adults receive some kind of benefit of being green? And um, is this color change reflected in where the chameleons live? Do Juveniles live in different areas than the adults. But what makes this paper doubly cool is they also wanted to take into account the social structure of chameleons. Um, so the social structure of animals can really influence their behavior in quite dramatic ways um, we often talk about niche partitioning on the podcast as if animals just kind of have a sense of their place they just know where they're supposed to be so an example would be you know male snakes just living higher in trees and females living lower on trees you know they just have an inkling that that's where they're supposed to be they just get a vibe and so they go up high but actually uh that might not always be the case um mm. if you consider that animals might be separated in this way because the animals themselves are actually being horrible to each other this would definitely be you know you could be tempted to believe this in chameleons because chameleons are well known as being you know really quite aggressive yeah you know they're one of the most spiteful animals in the animal kingdom and uh it would make good sense that if adults and juveniles were partitioning the habitat in some way it might be down to the fact that the adults if given the chance will be cruel to the babies because yeah, chameleons—that's their way. That's their nature. They're just—they're just mean beasts, and uh, they were set out to test this in a few different ways um, to sort of find out whether or not the adults and juveniles are affecting each other's behavior. Uh, the first thing they did was a dramatically one-sided Thunderdome, um, where they offered juvenile chameleons, like baby baby chameleons, to hungry adults. Um, so the adults were in these oh, outdoor enclosures. Smokes. Yeah. This is the worst Thunderdome ever. Yeah, it's not a fun Thunderdome, mate. Like, it's not, you know, this isn't some kind of epic battle between two titans. This is adult chameleons, fully grown in big outdoor enclosures, kept sort of as naturally as they can be in an enclosure. They, they, they went to great lengths to keep them at low densities. Um, on trees, in big mesh enclosures to sort of mimic the natural environment. So they're not just being forced into a small space with these babies. And then and then they present a baby chameleon, admittedly on tongs, to an adult chameleon and see whether or not the adult chameleon was willing to eat them. Um, 57% of the time, yes, they were. They gobbled those baby chameleons straight down, uh, which is utterly, utterly brutal. Um, and that's they term that pedophagic cannibalism, which is... A horrible pair of words um and yeah so they found out that these chameleons were willing to eat their own young which is brutal the other thing they did mm. was a different kind of thunderdome and they did this sounds one sounds like in... some sort of greek tragedy now doesn't it it does yeah it's horrible <laughs> uh but they also did another version of the thunderdome where they got this this one was done with all male chameleons and so they were putting male chameleons in an arena in pairs so this was like a three foot by 18 inch by 18 inch um white Vivarium with various perches, and what they did was they'd put two chameleons inside this arena. One well, of different kinds. So they'd do an adult and an adult, an adult and a juvenile, and a juvenile and a juvenile, and they'd look, they'd watch, they'd film it to see how they all interacted with each other in pairs. And what they found was that when a juvenile was put with another juvenile, usually one of the juveniles would become dark and submissive you know the other one would get aggressive and start gaping you know chasing after it stuff like that 67% of the time one of them would turn and flee the rest of the time they'd just kind of you know ignore each other do whatever Uh, and the same or a very similar finding was true when they put an adult with a juvenile about 70% of the 75% of the time sorry the juvenile would turn and run and the rest of the time they'd just kind of ignore each other Um, but it was always the juvenile that fled from the adult. So you've got agnostic interactions between both juveniles and juveniles and juveniles and adults. And then they did the same experiment with two adult male chameleons. And they found that there was always 100% of the time, one chameleon going submissive, turning dark body color, you know, doing other submissive postures, like hugging the perch, curling up its tail. Um, just basically saying, you know, it's cool. Leave it. (laughs) Don't want any trouble. Um, (laughs) leave me be, please. Yeah. And trying to escape. And, um, you know, that makes sense that 100% of adult interactions ended that way because a fight between an adult and an adult could potentially get quite nasty. Um, and they obviously have this mechanism to prevent injury and just, you know, cut their losses and get out of the way. Which is interesting. I mean, it seems kind of obvious that when you put an adult chameleon with a juvenile chameleon, in this case Jackson's chameleons, one's going to kind of not, you know... There's, there's going to be some kind of warfare and one's going to be submissive. But until you actually... Did you you know conduct these experiments you don't know exactly how often that is the case um so then the next stage of their experiment was to sort of experimentally test well not this, i not know if you can experiment but they would test whether or not when they released a load of chameleons in one area whether the juveniles would disperse <coughs> further away from the release area than adults to try and escape from the adults and I was just, just picturing someone sort of walking through a forest with this little bucket just
1: casting out chameleons like they're spreading seeds or something. And they, I know. It does sound like it was pretty much
0: like that. They just got go a load forth. of chameleons. Yeah, they got a load of adults, a load Look of Look at the young
1: ones flee. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's literally it. And uh, what they did was they put radio transmitters on all of them and then they let them go in the jungle. I mean, you know, Hawaii's already toast for invasive species. It doesn't matter if you let a few more go. Um and then, well, I presume they were captured from the wild as well. <laughs> I think they were, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, they'd stuck radio transmitters on them and they watched them, you know, for a few days to see how, you know, whether the juveniles left the area to try and escape from the adults, yada, yada. Um, what was interesting was that they didn't. The juveniles did stay in the same areas as the adults as they were released. The adults themselves had larger, larger home ranges, so they utilised more space. As expected, yeah, yeah, we would expect that. But generally speaking, uh, they all kind of stayed within the same area. Uh, while they didn't see more dispersal as they expected, so they you know they anticipated the juveniles would run, flee in front of a, a torrent of evil giant chameleons. Uh, they didn't see that, but what they did notice was that. Um, they were using the habitat differently. They were perching lower to the ground and they were using more shrubby plants where the adults preferred to be higher in trees. So they were partitioning the niche in some way, um, as you'd expect, um, which kind of gives credence to the author's original reason for doing this study in that the juveniles are a slightly different colour. Yes, they, uh, they use slightly different habitat. They didn't go so far as saying um, they use a hab- they're a different colour and they blend better. They didn't really talk about that. Um, But yeah, nevertheless, they do split the the, uh, habitat. And the other thing they did, finally, was they had a look at the guts of some juvenile adult chameleons. uh, 41 juveniles, 50 adults. And they found that they also partitioned the habitat in terms of diet, with adults preferring to eat flies and juveniles. <laughs> You're say, adults preferring to eat juveniles,
1: no, and yeah, juveniles no. preferring to
0: eat other smaller things no. that they could just get their hands on. No, you would think so. Um, but actually, yeah, the adults ate flies, and the juveniles were eating things like moth larvae and millipedes. And they actually found no evidence of cannibalism from 50 adult um, Hawaiian Jacksons oh. Um Interesting. The, yeah the, i mean they then talked about a load of other studies where animals are known to cannibalise. excuse me cannibalize but it's probably quite infrequent and if you think about the proportion of chameleons in an environment to the proportion of flies and um, how long something stays in a chameleon's gut to be sort of examined mm. it, it's not that improbable that 50 wouldn't have evidence even if they were eating baby chameleons and um they actually also mentioned that In their time observing adult chameleons uh, in the wild, they've actually seen them consuming other non-native lizards. Obviously, non-native lizards in Hawaii, there's loads. Um, They've seen them eating uh, plague skinks, uh, house geckos. Sorry, um,
1: plague skinks?
0: Yeah, this apparently called lamp, Lamp... God, what the hell? That's a hard one. Lampropholis delicata. Plague skink. Plague skink, yeah. Horrible name, plague yeah. skink. The delicate skink, dark flexed garden sun skink, garden skink, or plague skink. Why are they called
1: plague skinks? Oh my gosh, they're. I mean, they're quite sort of skink-like as you'd expect. Yeah, but they're not. They plague-y. don't look particularly <laughs> plagued. No. Whoa! I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. Sorry, I'm gonna have to quickly find out why they're called plague skinks.
0: <laughs>
1: I'll join you. <clears throat> Oh, according to uh, this random website, it was originally called the rainbow. No, the, it was originally called the rainbow skink because it's got some like uh, nice iridescence, but was renamed plague skink due to how many there are. Oh right! So they're everywhere, and they're high density in New Zealand, where they've also been introduced, and so they've been dubbed the plague skink.
0: Well, that's a little unkind, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but it's also kind of cool. What do you study? I study plague skinks. Maybe I'll rename the
0: Escalapian snake the plague snake. (laughs)
1: Plague snake.
0: It's pretty, yeah. It's actually way more catchy than Escalapian. And easier to spell, surprisingly. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think I have the authority to do that. (laughs) It's a common name. You just have to keep using it. (laughs) Yeah, just make it common enough. Um... So yeah, long story short, they can eat, they do eat other lizards. And yes, they will eat baby lizards. And they're partitioning the habitat, as you might expect. Um, And so that's a cool paper, albeit about the ecology of an invasive species. And what's a bit sad is that we know way more about Jackson's. We've talked about this on the podcast before. We know way more about Jackson's chameleons in their non-native range than we do in their native range, you know, on Mount Kenya and stuff like that, which is unfortunate. It goes for quite a few... Invasive species. Oh, absolutely, yeah.
1: And I tell you what, it reminds me of a story it does from the southern hemisphere, a little known species called cane toads. Oh my gosh. Little young cane toads tend to be found more frequently in in daylight hours because the big cane toads that tend to eat them will come out at night. So there's a little bit of a uh, activity partitioning happening there. Of the young'uns trying to evade the big angry cane toads that all consume all. I like that. I like the idea of was a Pizzato two thousand
0: and eight paper. But yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. You're a baby cane toad and you know the danger of going out at night. So you just don't. You think, no, you know, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with those giant horrible monsters trying to eat me. <laughs> and then one day, a couple of years down I'll the line. I'll be the giant horrible monster. Yeah. You know, you wake up and I'll eat the tiny toads. <laughs> you you'll you flash in- <laughs> You wake up one afternoon and you think, "I'm not going out. I'm staying in. I'm going out tonight, and I'm going to eat yeah. some baby cane toads. Who's going to stop me? No one. How can yeah, they? They can't. And if they do, they'll die. Big frog, big toad,
1: small pond. And then this is... red-tailed hawk swoops down, bites out his tongue, and leaves it for dead. Jeez. Because they're, they're smart enough to eat only tongues. I think That's why red-tailed
0: like hawks. Rings a bell. Um, Anyway, so that was the uh, the Jacksons' habitat partitioning and uh, pedophagic pedophagic cannibalism, um, which is just gross. But this got me wondering, you know, um, is cannibalism a thing? Like, what is what does a Jackson's (laughs) chameleon taste like? So I went and got myself some Jackson's chameleon stew. Uh, No, I didn't, but I did foolishly search YouTube for Cannibal Chameleon. And I regret to inform you I found the video I was looking for. Albeit not with the species in question. I've just sent this video to you on Messenger Ben. Have a look. I'll talk about it as you watch it. Yeah. And then you can give us your reaction. Have you got it?
1: It's uh it's loading slowly. So You gotta remember this... that
0: we we're running things on 4G here. Yes. Okay. So apparently this comes from a Netflix documentary which I couldn't find called Africa's Deadliest. Apparently it's episode three. If you want to watch it, um, and yeah, it's a video of I. Oh. Yeah. Gross. Right. Well, at least it was over quickly. Well, yeah, but it's the crunching that I can't deal with. <laughs> oh, I don't have any. I don't have any sound. No, no, the crunch. I, there is no sound. I just mean the motion and the appearance of the crunching. Oh. So basically, it's a, Nama, it's a Namaqua chameleon. And it is just. Well, the video starts oh, and there's, let's see like that a, again. there's a small Namaqua chameleon standing next to a way bigger Namaqua chameleon. And yeah. Originally, I thought it was a smaller one in front
1: of the telly that was getting annoyed like a, like a dog <laughs> that sees another dog on telly.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That would have been adorable. No, this is also, a chameleon. Also,
1: YouTube allows you to slow stuff down. So, slow-mo replay fully available <laughs> for this little chameleon trying to make a
0: break for it and getting wasted. <laughs> it's horrible because at the beginning Damn. the chameleon is like doing a big threat display and then it sort of like does a little jog to try and get away. And then foolishly it makes a decision to stop and do some more dancing around to try and threaten the big one. Yeah, and the tongue comes out, it just gets mucked. and it just
1: That's crazy. That
0: is crazy. That's going it. in the show notes yeah Yeah. so if you want to watch it yourself be warned it's not very uh yeah yeah it's not
1: I mean, very it is nice. a yes, baby chameleon getting chowed down by a massive chameleon it's yeah impressive if
0: a little haunting yeah amazingly though it only has 4 thousand five hundred views you'd think it'd be more popular <laughs> well it's had a couple more now mm-hmm. um so yeah that's that that's the uh that's the story of chameleon cannibalism yeah. And mate, we're uh, we're running quite long already on this episode, aren't we? We're up to one minute, one hour. Should we? I mean, should we? Should we get onto any other business? Do you think?
1: Um, I've got a tiny short uh, PSA. Go on, then. Uh, I just wanted to bring up this Fitzpatrick et al. paper that was published recently about uh, B-Sal, the salamander equivalent of Kitred uh, that's in Europe and stuff, uh-huh. and how it is actually potentially quite widespread in private amphibian collections, and this paper is just drawing attention to that. So, hey, watch out. If if people trade in amphibians in Europe and stuff, sit up and take note, because this is quite a big deal, and uh, you don't want your salamanders infected by things, and you certainly don't want to be trading around salamanders that are infected. Because that could get real nasty.
0: Yeah, and uh, you've already
1: there... seen some pretty decent declines in uh, parts of Central Europe. So let's not that let's not let that become a uh, even worse situation
0: than it already is. Yeah, there's a there's some advice that you can read. Um, there's one for field workers by Amphibian Reptile Groups of the UK that you can Google and find. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything for people keeping them, but yeah, just Yeah, just be mindful of it. There's certainly don't pour newt water all over wild newts that you find. <laughs> what a strange thing to
1: do anyway. There you go guys. <laughs> it's a fresh newt water. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'll no, stop making no. that that like newt lemonade that people love. <laughs> just... No, that's a valid PSA man. Um Yeah. I, cool. you know, I don't want
1: to go into too much detail because it's complicated stuff that I'm not fully understand, understanding because it's epidemiology and things, if that's the right word. Is that disease stuff or is that skin stuff? No,
0: that's that's disease. That's like epidemics. Yeah.
1: Okay, there we go. That word. Um, but it is important that people know. Uh, that was published in Scientific Reports and I believe it's also open access. <laughs> so Skin would be dermatology.
0: Oh, yeah, I was thinking epidermis epidermatology would be epidermatology you know, just specifically the outside of the skin <laughs> <laughs> the very edges of the skin which i suppose isn't
1: actually not it, it's actually quite relevant to the b-cell stuff anyway because that's on the skin of the amphibian isn't it so
0: i suppose it would be yeah you're, you're not wrong hey so uh anyway um just a brief mention we went on morelia python radio yesterday and um it was really fun uh so yeah thank you to uh the Muralia Python guys, you. for hosting us. It was so good. Yes. Those guys are so professional. Uh, I aspire to be uh, as good at interviewing as they are. Uh, it was awesome. It was really, really fun. And um, yeah, you can listen to that episode. I, I just posted a link up on the on our Facebook page and uh, we'll put a link to it in the description of this episode as well. If you don't already listen to Muralia Python Radio, consider giving it a, a listen. If you're interested in uh, the kind of... Um, Reptile keeping and husbandry side, particularly if you're interested in pythons, it's a, it's a good podcast for you. And yeah, they've been going for ages. So the back catalog's like something crazy, like 300 plus episodes. Mm. Luxurious. Yeah, you can never run out. Um, also, yeah, we had an email from uh, Robin Van Dyke showing us a photo of the toad mug. The toad mug is awesome. We love the toad mug. Oh, the glorious grumpy toad mug. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, I'm so glad they've, uh, they've they've come out okay. Like yeah, it's but, always got this fear that oh, in reality these just come out a bit duff, but looks all right. Yeah, looks Would like you, it's
0: worked. Yeah, if you want to buy your own toad mug, you can on uh, Red Redbubble. Just Google it. Um, I am tempted, mate. Yeah, I mean, I might get one. I've got so many mugs though. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, and also Robin had a correction for us. Um, I mentioned a shrew genus. Uh, in the Macambaco Gap. Love that, Macambaco Gap. The perils of the Makambaco mm, Gap. The Macambaco uh, Corridor, you mean. Yes. Yeah, you said it. Uh, it belongs to the family Soricidae, which are the true shrews. I mistakenly said they were related to elephants. They are, but not very closely at all. It's actually the elephant shrews, as you'd expect, called Sengis, Temrex. Well, called Sengis. And also Temrex, Golden Moles, and Hyraxes that are that belong to the clade Afrotheria along with elephants, um, with hyraxes being the most closely related. So thank you very much for that correction, Robin. Never again will I say anything about mammals. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and he was... <laughs> Unless... It... yeah. And Robin also shared a video of uh, the giant elephant shrews in Houston Zoo, which is just mental. Did you watch that video? With the shrew, uh, with the nose? The nose is like, like a Like complete... almost fully... It's like its own appendage
1: Almost prehensile
0: Yes it is I mean I don't know if it would be Truly prehensile But it's just crazy This thing is like The the nose has a mind of its own It's all over the place It's incredible It's more like an antenna I hope it's
1: it's not like A mind of its own I hope the shrew's controlling it Because otherwise What a horrible curse that would be
0: (laughs) (laughs) A nose that just does what it wants Uh, On the front of your face You're just doing Your noses bidding Your whole life That'd be hell Yeah you're quite right um, yeah, but yeah. So that's uh, that's sort of all the other business that I've got. Uh, yeah, uh, we had a so bringing up the going rolling right back to the traits of
1: the lizards of the world paper. We had a correction from Mark shirts about it because one of the things when you're doing a massive, massive sort of multi-species review thing like that that uh, Mary did is that you're reliant on a lot of sources and. Things can slip through the gaps. I was talking about a weird nocturnal chameleon, and I brought it up because I was like, "This is weird. It's nocturnal chameleon. <laughs> that seems really strange." Well, it turns out that species is almost certainly not nocturnal at all. It's diurnal, like the rest of them. But uh, Mark managed to ID where it's come from, and it's basically a misunderstanding of a couple of sentences in a field guide. Um, by Glorin that the the big uh, field guide to amphibians and reptiles of Madagascar, which is a unbelievably wicked book, which I wish I could have one day. Um, well, put it in. But your yeah, businesses. basically, oh, mate, it's limit expensive, and it's oh, shipping costs to take it out here, and then I got a massive book that I got to take home at some point. No, I need, I need digital stuff while I'm the, on the move and travelling. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but one day, one day. Uh, what was I going to say? The nocturnal yes, lizard I, Yeah, problem id deed the diurnal, no big deal. Bit of a misunderstanding, but it explains why it was weird. Um. It also explains why think... I got the
0: question wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yes. You're thinking, oh no, they're all diurnal. That's crazy. Nocturnal chameleon, whatever. But, yep, just thought I'd cover that as we just covered that paper now. So I'm picking it up as a very cool resource. But as is always going to be the way when you're working with a huge data set, there's always going to be stuff that slips through. Because you're working mm. with, what was it, 6,657 lizards. That's a lot to take a fine-tooth comb to.
0: Yeah, yeah, these things happen. Thanks, so Mark, for calling it out. <laughs> mm yeah excellent sweet um yeah nice one well i think that just about wraps it up doesn't it i think so i don't think we've forgotten anything
1: i hope not apologies if we have if you got a correction for yeah for this episode anything you heard that seems a little bit off or a little bit strange or you just know better uh do let us know because corrections are very important to us we do try our very best to make sure everything's right and if not right well qualified with uh we don't really know but we think it's kind of like this so Mm. yeah don't hesitate
0: do get in touch yeah and uh what else oh um yeah sorry it's so late this episode uh i moved house and it was a massive pain as you might expect i still don't have internet but uh i've I've got something cobbled together, so this one's coming out. The next one sh- hopefully will be on time, and then after that we'll be back to our normal schedule. So we haven't actually missed any episodes. We just uh, they're just coming out a bit late and a bit more. they just shifted together. around a little bit, yeah. yeah and you got the um, bonus Morelia one to make up for it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that was so fun. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I also met um, Dan and Mike from Reptile and Chill uh, at Doncaster Reptile Show recently. Uh, so. Those they're such nice blokes, and uh, if you're not already listening to that podcast, check it out. Uh, it's another sort of keeping reptile keeping one. Um, awesome, yeah. All right, cool. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can herp highlights at gmail.com, facebook.com slash herp highlights, twitter at herp highlights. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, if,
1: um, you feel the urge to help keep the show going and cover some costs? We do have a Patreon, which... Oh, God. We'll see uh, URL for that.
0: Isn't it just patreon.com slash Uh
1: Yes, it is. Excellent. Uh, which is patreon.com slash Highlights. We are powered powered by the generosity of our listeners uh, in more ways than one
0: yeah alright cool yeah well thanks very much for listening and uh, we'll see you sooner than usual very soon talk about arboreal snakes
1: yeah thank you for listening